This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In ancient times, before Christianity, before Islam, before Arabs settled in the Middle East, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Kingdom of Babylon. Following that national tragedy 2,600 years ago, the Jews of Judea, in today's Israel, were exiled and settled in Babylon, in today's Iraq, and elsewhere throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Naturally, these Jewish communities grew. To cite just one example, by 1939, fully one-third of the population of Baghdad was Jewish. Today, only five Jewish people reportedly still live in Baghdad. What happened? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Lynn Julius about her new book, Uprooted, How 3,000 Years of Jewish Civilization in the Arab World Vanished Overnight. Lynn Julius is a journalist with a degree in international relations. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, Times of Israel, and Huffington Post, among other media. Lynn Julius, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Renee. It's a great pleasure. Before we begin talking about your new book, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I am the daughter of Iraqi Jewish refugees. Um, They came to the UK in 1950. They were amongst a a small minority of Iraqi Jews who actually came to the UK. The vast majority went to Israel uh, during that period. Uh, But even though I was born in the UK, the story of the Jews of Iraq sort of haunted me throughout uh, my childhood uh, because uh, I still had relatives living in Baghdad uh, and as as you know, um, conditions deteriorated for them quite dramatically in the late 60s after the Six-Day War, which was a terrible uh, defeat for the Arab countries. And uh, the uh, Saddam Hussein's regime, which was then in power, turned against the remnant Jewish community. It only um, comprised about 3,000 Jews at the time. He, they turned against these Jews and started accusing them of being spies for Israel. And they brought in all sorts of restrictions. Um, They started arresting them. And they even hanged nine Jews in Liberation Square in Baghdad in 1969. Um, The community was actually hostage to the regime and uh, they did eventually manage to get out. They were smuggled out with the help of the Kurds through northern Iraq, and I had my aunt and several cousins who actually made that journey in the dead of night with one suitcase over the border into Iran. So, of course, that stayed with me um, throughout my childhood. 
Um, I, I really do think that the plight of Jews and other minorities in the Middle East is is the understanding this plight is the key to really understanding what is going on in the Middle East today. Renee. Mm, well, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. I, I believe some readers of your book will be surprised to learn that more than half of Israel's Jewish population would be considered people of color if they were living in the U.S. or many other Western countries. They are refugees and their descendants from Arab and North African countries. So give us a little bit about the early history. When did Jews first settle in the Middle East? Uh, right, yes. Jews first settled in the mid- Middle East, as you said in your introduction, in biblical times. Uh, for instance, the diaspora of uh, Babylon, or the Jews of Iraq, go back 2,600 years. It's the oldest Jewish diaspora. But other communities as well have a very ancient history. For instance, Yemen, which goes back uh, nearly 3,000 years. Iran and the Jewish communities of um, what I call the southern ex-Soviet Muslim republics, for instance, uh, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, that sort of thing. They're all part of the sort of greater Babylonian diaspora. Uh, also, North Africa was um, was a very old community that goes back at least 2,000 years. So we're talking about uh, a millennium before Islam even existed. Yes, absolutely. I'd say the Jews are the indigenous people of the Middle East, along with other communities, other other peoples, for instance, the Copts or the Assyrians or the Berbers. So why is that history not well known today? I think there are lots of reasons for that. One is that uh, most of these Jews ended up in Israel. Not many of them have actually told their story outside Israel. So it's not sort of accessible to an international audience. Um, Also, a lot of the work that's been done on this subject has been in French by scholars um, like Georges Bensoussan, Nathan Weinstock, Paul Fenton, Batiot. Although Batiot's work has been translated into English, but it's sort of, it's, it's stayed... Uh, more or less within the confines of academia. And uh, up until 2010, when Sir Martin Gilbert uh, wrote his book, In Ishmael's House, I'd say there wasn't anything particularly accessible for the general reading public, um, and certainly nothing available in, um, in, in regular bookshops for people, uh, for people to, uh, to read. So what happened to the other minorities? You mentioned the Copts and the Berbers. What, what happened to them once the area was uh, Arabized and Islamicized? Well, uh, the, the Berbers uh, are Muslim, but they are not Arab. Uh, like the Kurds, they uh, were forcibly Islamized, and they have a very different uh, set of values, I'd say, from uh, the Muslim Arabs. And some Berbers aspire to autonomy or even self-determination 
in North Africa. Uh, so they do feel oppressed uh, by uh, the establishment, if you like, uh, in those countries. Um, the Copts, for instance, are a religious minority, a uh, very ancient religious minority going back to ancient Egypt. They have been persecuted by uh, the Egyptian government uh, and, and by groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which was founded in 1928 and, and began to incite hatred against, uh, against the Copts and against the Jews as, as far back as, as the 1930s. So the Copts actually have suffered uh, a, great, a great deal of persecution. Um, and, and I would argue that um, this, is, this has been the, you know, the plight of, of many minorities in the Middle East. One, one, can, uh, one thinks of, of the Yazidis, for instance, who've, who've suffered terribly in the last few years. But this was actually, I think, the, se- the 72nd persecution that they've suffered um, in their history, in their long history. Um, so the conclusion is minorities um, who have no sovereign state to defend them uh, in the Middle East uh, have been vulnerable uh, to violence and persecution um, and have saf- suffered a great deal. Uh, I'd say the Jews, because we have Israel, we're not in that category anymore. Um, so, you know, that the key to surviving in the Middle East is really to have your own sovereign state and the power to defend it. During the uh, many long centuries of uh, Muslim domination in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, there was something called the Dimi or Dima system uh, under which minorities, religious minorities lived. Explain that to us. What is the Dima system? Right. Well, the Dimmi status was really brought in under the Pact of Omar in the uh, 7th century after Muhammad uh, conquered um, much of the Middle East. And it basically assigned uh, Jews and Christians um, <clears throat> a special status. They, they were actually. Um, allowed to practice uh, their religion, their their monotheistic religion, but only under certain conditions. Um, The most important was that they had to pay a tax to the ruler of the day. And uh, that tax, the jizya, um, really was a kind of uh, (laughs) mafia-like... Protection. Sort of payment, protection, yes. It was yeah. a bit like a protection racket. And the, the Jews and the Christians subcontracted their right to self-defense uh, to whoever was, was the ruler. Um, there were also uh, uh, additional restrictions on their lives. For instance, um, they could not build synagogues higher than mosques. Um, they had to walk on, on a certain side of the street. They had to wear certain clothing. 
and they did not have the same rights in a court of law. Uh, now, this system uh, governed the 14 centuries that Jews and Muslims lived side by side. It was not always universally applied, and uh, sometimes the ruler disregarded them altogether. But at other times, the Dhimmi rules were applied quite strictly, uh, especially in those areas of the Arab world that were not controlled by the Ottomans. Uh, I'm thinking of Morocco, for instance, or Yemen, and also Iran or Persia, as it was then. And that's where the Jews actually uh, suffered most um, from the Dhimmi status. I see. Uh, psychologists have described something that was once called the Stockholm Syndrome, in which uh, kidnapped people held hostage develop, counterintuitively, positive feelings toward their captors. They denied their fear. They denied feeling in danger. And since then, similar symptoms have been found in other victims of sexual abuse, for example. Um, you reference a researcher, you mentioned her before, Batya R., who identified a Dimi syndrome in which unpleasant memories of life under Islam are suppressed. Um, talk about memories and memoirs of Jews who have been driven out of Arab lands. What do they say? Yes, I think that um, there is such a thing as a Dimi syndrome. Um, and it is a result of 14 centuries of, of having to survive uh, under Islamic domination. And, and what, it, what it entails is the Dimi will minimize his suffering or he won't mention it at all. He will proclaim his loyalty to the regime, um, you know, and he'll say everything is, is fine. And there are even extreme examples of this, you know, as, as recently as under, under the Nazi um, regime in Tunisia, for instance, when Jews would say, oh, it wasn't so bad being under the Nazis. Uh, uh, I do think that um, Jews in Morocco, for instance, still suffer from this uh, Dimmi syndrome. Is that um, true? I, yes, I, I, I do. That. Yes, I even those who are outside Morocco, um, they will not uh, say anything against the regime. They will praise the king of Morocco, um, you know, and proclaim their loyalty to him. And I think the result of this has been to downplay the anti-Semitism that they suffered. So as a result, people have a very positive image of Morocco. Um, you don't hear many stories of anti anti-Semitism in Morocco. You know, uh, many people, many Moroccan Jews um, do do say, "Oh, we had a wonderful life. You know, everything was 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 fine. The king protected us." Uh, or they may say, "Well, we left Morocco because we were Zionists, uh, because of the pull of Israel." Um, and and they won't talk about their previous life um, in Morocco. 
And, and that's so counter- I do think this is a very real syndrome. Sorry, yeah. that, and that's counterfactual. You're saying that it. Not that they I, really I'm did saying like it. that. Um, yes, I think it certainly. I think um, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in Morocco. It affected the lower classes, those who lived in mixed areas in Moroccan cities, far more than the wealthy uh, who who actually were kind of insulated in a kind of bubble uh, from um, the society around them and were able to bribe their way out of difficult circumstances. Well, Jews lived in these countries for more than 2,000 years. Um, today's Iraq, for example, was Mesopotamia, home of the biblical Abraham and the prophets in the Bible, Nehemiah and Jonah and others. What happened to those heritage sites? Yes, well, uh, there were about 17 biblical figures who uh, I think lived and died in the region. As you mentioned, uh, there were five biblical prophets um, who are buried in Iraq, Iran, or Syria, or Lebanon. One was uh, the prophet Ezekiel, and his shrine is uh, about two hours south of Baghdad. It was a very popular place of pilgrimage for the Jews uh, of Iraq when there was a community there. And about 5,000 Jews would come and, um, and pray at the shrine uh, around the time of Shavuot and also between, um, between New Year and uh, Yom Kippur. Uh, now, that shrine, if you, see, if you see contemporary pictures, you will see that it has been transformed beyond all recognition. The burial chamber is still intact with its uh, Hebrew inscriptions around the walls, but uh, a massive uh, Shia shrine has been constructed in the last 10 years, uh, dwarfing the original site. And the Muslim Shiites who come on pilgrimage there, they don't talk about the prophet Ezekiel, they talk about the shrine of the Imam Ali. Uh, so what's happened is this, these, this heritage site has been taken over, if you like. Um, and if a Jew turned up and wanted to visit uh, the tomb of Ezekiel, he almost certainly would not be allowed in because this is a sacred Shia shrine. And this, I would say, is what's happened to a lot of Jewish heritage um, in the Arab world, uh, synagogues have been allowed to crumble to dust. Um, highways have been built across cemeteries. Um, and most galling of all, um, Jewish movable property like um, libraries, documents, Torah scrolls are being claimed by Arab governments at the moment as their own heritage. So basically, they're using international law, uh, which safeguards uh, national heritage, to legitimize the theft of, of their 
Jewish communities who are all who are all now in exile and are demanding that uh, their property, um, you know, be restored to them. So uh, this is the situation we're in now. I see. You you have a, a very interesting concept that I'd like you to elaborate on. In the book, you use a phrase, uh, Jews were feminized in the Muslim imagination. What did you mean by that? Say a little more about it. Right. Well, this is part of the sort of dimmy uh, status of the Jew. The Jew was not allowed to uh, defend himself. Therefore, he was feminized. He, he was like a woman, a defenseless woman. Uh, and that's why um, the prevailing image of the Jew is is really one of of being a coward, a woman and a coward. Uh, so um, when Israel defeated the Arab countries, you can imagine what a terrible shock it must have been, and what a humiliation it was for Arab states to be defeated by this effeminate creature. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, but before and during World War II, what was the attitude of Arab leaders to fascism, to Nazi ideology? Um, yes, that's a very interesting question. Um, before World War II, the Middle East saw the rise of Arab nationalism um, and also Islamism. Now, Arab nationalism manifested itself in, in the establishment of certain uh, ultra-nationalist parties, for instance, uh, the Ba'ath Party, uh, which still exists today. And as, as we know, President Assad of Syria is, is the head of, that, of the, the Syrian branch of the Ba'ath Party. And these ultra-nationalist parties actually were inspired by uh, Nazi ideology. You know, they, they were blood and soil uh, parties. And, and in effect, they marginalized and excluded um, any communities that were not Arab or not uh, Muslim. And so you got this, gen this gradual... Uh, process of of minorities being pushed to the margins during the 20th century and finally into exile. So that was secular Arab nationalism. Uh, Islamism, as I mentioned before, was first founded in 1928 by an Egyptian called Hassan al-Banna, and uh, they took a slightly different view. They, they wanted to reestablish the caliphate, which had come to an end um, with, the, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but I would argue that anti-Semitism was at the very heart of their philosophy. And not just because um, tension was, in, was, was brewing in, in Palestine, you know, with more and more clashes between Jews and Arabs, but because the Muslim Brotherhood viewed the Jews as everything that they abhorred, 
sort of the the Jews represented modernity. They they represented Westernization. They represented civil rights, minority rights, women's rights. Um, and the reason for that is because the Jews began to educate their own girls uh, in Western schools. Um, they were more prominent than Muslims in the theater, in the arts. Um, and they, they sort of represented um, the future, if you like. And, and the Muslim Brotherhood wanted to turn the clock back and reestablish uh, the Dimmi rules where the Jews would really know their place. And as we know, the Islamism is still a very powerful force in the yes. world today. And, sadly, uh, that's true. Sadly, yeah. yeah. You have a chapter uh, titled... Uh, what came first, anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism? Talk about that and what you conclude. Yes, well, I think there is a myth that is quite current, um, and that is that before the State of Israel was established, there was no anti-Semitism in the Arab world, uh, and Arabs and Jews got along, coexistent, coexisted peacefully, um, and there was no trouble. But of course, if, if you look at the history, uh, that's not true at all. Uh, we've talked about the Dimmi status, uh, in which the Jews and the Christians were actually considered inferior to uh, Muslims. Um, but there were also sporadic outbreaks of violence, um, and uh, there was the odd uh, expulsion. Uh, and I think it's important to also say that Jews and Christians were under continuous pressure to convert to Islam, you know, because they would not be completely accepted otherwise. Uh, and even, even under secular uh, nationalism in the 20th century, you know, you have examples of, of Jews and Christians who ended up converting to Islam because that was the only way um, that they could be fully, fully accepted uh, by the Muslims around them. So if we turn to Israel again for a moment, um, we find now that more than half of the population are refugees or descendants of refugees of the conditions and history that you just described, which sounds uh, difficult at best. I, how would you say that that history influences the current political Jews, political views of those Israeli Jews? Oh, I think it is extremely influential. I think it explains why these Jews vote for parties on the right. Um, I think that has been often misunderstood, you know, that um, Israelis sometimes say, well, it's because they experience discrimination from the Labour Party establishment when they arrived and they're trying to get their own back against, against the establishment. But I do think um, there is this underlying uh, memory 
of persecution and anti-Semitism and, and mistrust of um, the Arab side that's motivating how uh, Mizrahi Jews vote today. And uh, they are the ones who are uh, least, uh, most cautious about, you know, peace initiatives. Um, so, you know, you always, you always get to, uh, the people on the left, or on the far left, are almost invariably Ashkenazi Jews who don't have this background uh, and perhaps don't understand, um, you know, this, this terrible history. Well, the, the point of view of the experiences of that half of the population is, is not really elevated, which is one of the reasons your book is, is so important. The refugees that are generally discussed and focused on in this part of the world are Palestinians who fled or were driven from Israel. And tell us about what, what's similar and what's different uh, about the Jewish refugees from Muslim countries uh, and the Palestinian refugees in the territories. Well, two sets of refugees did emerge uh, from the Middle East conflict. As you say, we only hear about one side, about the Palestinian refugees. There is a fundamental difference between the two sets, and that is Palestinian refugees fled a war zone, you know, and the confusion, the uncertainty, and, uh, you know, the... Uh, the conditions of that of that war in uh, 1948, whereas the Jews in Arab countries were innocent non-combatants; they were not part of this war, and they were targeted by the Arab governments, um, who introduced state-sanctioned persecution, you know, restrictive laws. Um, discriminatory laws, freezing their bank accounts, sacking them from jobs, stripping the, them of their citizenship, and ultimately dispossessing them of their property. Uh, and these laws were not introduced against Palestinian refugees. Um, so there is a fundamental difference there. Um, the Jews in Arab countries um, were actually punished for, um, for, for what was going on in Palestine, even though they had nothing to do with Palestine. Also, another big difference is the Palestinians want to return to, uh, to Israel, um, whereas no Jew from an Arab country wants to return to Arab countries, which remain as hostile uh, to them as the day these Jews left them. That's true. That's, that's very true. Um, and of course, the Jews are resettled in various countries, in Israel or England, as your, your parents, or other places. Um, and the Palestinians have refused resettlement or have been refused, depending on the country you're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, that, that is the fundamental difference. Uh, the Jews 
no longer consider themselves refugees. They've been successfully resettled, as you say. The Palestinians have been left to fester in uh, camps to live off um, international aid. Uh, and their numbers have grown to, I think, five million because uh, unusually um, they are allowed to pass on their refugee status from one generation to the next. Right. Uh, and so their problem has been perpetuated, whereas the Jewish problem has, in fact, been solved. Right, as, as have all the other refugees in the 20th century. There have been absolutely yeah. millions of them around the world, uh, and they've all been resettled in a, a new place. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. What would you like to see happen with the issue of Jews who were driven out of Arab lands? Yes, well, I would like to see them included in any discussions um, about uh, the conflict. And certainly, whenever Palestinian refugees are mentioned, the Jewish refugees ought to be part of the conversation as well. Uh, the Jews have certain rights uh, which have been neglected. Um, they, they deserve recognition. Um, and, and if it were possible, compensation. But I think recognition is actually the primary um, aim. Um, I, I think they're absolutely essential to understanding the conflict. Um, their rights must not be neglected or ignored. Um, I think too many people have a very partial view of, of what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, they must see it in the wider context of, of the oppression of the minorities um, you know, because um, I do believe that, you know, Israel represents a, a sort of a, a, an, an authentic Middle Eastern people, um, you know, trying to assert itself in, um, you know, amongst, amongst Arab Muslim states. Why do you think the story of the Jews who were driven out of Arab countries is important in any future peace negotiation and settlement between Israel and the Palestinians? Yes, I, th I think they are important because two sets of refugees um, were, uh, were created, if you like, um, out of the Middle East conflict, not one, as is often said. The Jewish refugees um, have rights. They have rights to recognition and even to compensation, if, if that were possible. Um, it's important because more than 50% of the Jews of Israel um, originate from Arab countries, or their descendants do, and therefore a peace settlement that does not take into account the rights of Jewish refugees will not be credible and will not be based on historical truth. Uh, so that's why it's important. Also, it's important because um, Israel really represents the, um, the aspirations to self-determination of an indigenous Middle Eastern people. And they have political rights too. 
you know, we 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 so often hear about um, that the Middle East is the Arab world, you know, and that there's this assumption only Arabs have political rights in the area, uh, but that's not true, and there are other indigenous Middle Eastern peoples, for instance, the Kurds, who've been claiming uh, their right to self-determination for over a century. Uh, But only the Jews, miraculously, have managed to achieve this. Um, And and the Jews should not be seen as an anomaly, you know, or as interlopers or, or, you know, an anomaly um, in the Middle East. They are absolutely... Um, you know, indigenous to the Middle East, and they have every right to have their own sovereign state. And in fact, that is the lesson uh, that all minorities have learned, that in order to survive in this inhospitable region, you need to have your own sovereign state uh, and the power to defend it. Rene? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Lynn, you've been very generous with your time. And uh, before I let you go, tell us what you're working on now. Yes, well, I am still busy promoting the book. Um, We are at the moment, at this time of year, um, sort of observing a special special day um, on or around the 30th of November um, which is designated uh, to to recall the, the the exodus of of Jewish refugees from Arab and Muslim countries. Uh, so you know we're we're very very busy at the moment. I've been talking about my book recently. I went to Norway and Denmark uh, for their thirtieth uh, of November commemorations. Uh, so you know it's definitely keeping me busy. Uh, and I, I should say my book has been translated into Norwegian. And um, well, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So I, w- I went to Norway for the launch of, of that. And I do hope that eventually there'll be other translations, perhaps into Hebrew, into Arabic. Uh, that would be really wonderful. <laughs> Well, I wish you lots of luck with it. It sounds like a wonderful project, and it's really important work. Thank you so much for being on the show today, and thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Thank you, Renee. 